facing at some point soon a, a shift as we prepare to go to two services and we probably will eliminate our break so I'm sad to break that news but we'll have still have plenty of time to get together once we start doing that well if you are new here uh, welcome my name is Paul Buckley I'm the lead pastor here and it is my incredible privilege uh, and honor that I get to bring the Word of God to you in this church my church um, this morning we will be in Romans chapter 8 we're in a series actually in Mark called amazed where we're learning about Jesus uh, being amazed by who he is and beckoned but to follow him but we're taking time on today Father's Day to address the topic of fatherhood from Romans chapter 8 Uh, for me, at this stage of my life, Father's Day uh, means mixed emotions, uh, especially as I remember my dad. Um, my dad passed on uh, just a little over two years ago, and, uh, and I'm very grateful for my dad. There's something about Father's Day, something about your dad uh, passing on that gives a clarity of thought. I think I perceive uh, what my dad has meant to me better now. I ever have as I look back kind of in the rearview mirror and my dad uh, dad died in March 2011 and um, I, I as I've told many many of you know I got to spend a, a week with him right before he died I had a whole week with my dad um, just to uh, uh, he was in the hospital and got to talk with him uh, it's probably the best week uh, with my dad of my whole life uh, I got to talk with him talk about life and talk about Christ really asked my dad if he was ready and and it was wonderful to hear him talk about how he was ready how he was trusting Christ um, his concern was more for his wife my mom than for himself he felt at peace and it was just so sweet to be able to talk uh, I actually went through John and read uh, some of the stories uh, of Christ and uh, the I am statements of Christ with my dad and that was just such a sweet time with him and I believe he's with the Lord right now and I am really looking forward to seeing him again um, I, my one thing I, my dad and I like to do together is golf and I hope that there's golf in the new creation because I want to play him and maybe finally beat my dad <laughs> but as I think about my dad and, and uh, even as we were worshiping just thinking about the sweetness of what Christ has done that my dad's in heaven because of Christ and just thinking about my dad um, it's just a clarity of thought at this stage of my life and, and I realized how uh, how I've been so richly blessed by my dad. My dad grew up in a generation where you didn't show your love so much by uh, words or affection, but by loyalty and hard work. And my dad made it very clear to all of us that he loved us, that he was there for us. I, I grew up with just a sense of security in my dad. I knew he was my dad. And I knew that really no matter what I did, and believe me, I tested the limits, um, no matter what I did, he would always be my dad. He would see me as his son. There was a security. And there was an identity, too, I think I had in that, that, that my dad believed in me. My dad was an encourager. He believed in the possibility of things I could do in my life. And, and I knew that because of how he counseled and encouraged me, but I also knew it because of the delight in my dad's own way. And it wasn't through words and emotion, but just through interest, earnest interest in the things that I was doing in my life, his, his uh, enjoyment of what I was doing, and, and I really missed that, actually. It's 
Alabama to talk to my dad and, and about what was going on. And, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the security I had. I really, I think I understood what it, what it is to be a son through my dad, this security and this identity. And I'm so grateful for that. And I believe that that is probably the most important thing uh, a dad can give a son or a daughter is a sense of security and identity, and a, particularly when that dad knows Christ and can pass on that truth and that sort of identity and security. As great as our earthly fathers might have been in doing that, or perhaps as poorly as our earthly fathers might have been in doing that, it's only a shadow of the security and identity that our Heavenly Father offers us in Christ. It's really just a reflection at best of this ultimate security and identity. And so that's what I want to talk about today on Father's Day. Not so much what it means to be a dad, an earthly dad, though there's lots of implications. I want to talk about the whole idea of our Heavenly Father. And in particular, I want to talk about the issue of adoption. Adoption into God's family as his sons and daughters. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 uh, at verses 12 through 17, and I want to focus in actually on verse 15. Um, we're going to look at this, and we're going to just learn about our Heavenly Father from that. Um, I really believe that God wants to speak to us uh, through His Word today. Um, I've been praying and preparing, and I just have a sense. So I want to stop and ask God to do that. Ultimately, He's the one who's the Heavenly Father, and He wants to communicate that to us. So let's ask Him to do that through His Word. Lord, we thank You that you are the ultimate father. You are the original father, the ultimate father. And you have communicated to us through your word in a substantial way, in a, a really a, a complete way, so that we could understand who you are as our heavenly father. And I ask you, Lord, to give me ability, give us ability, give each one here ability to hear from you. Give me the ability to speak for you. And I pray, God, that we would hear from you about what it means to be adopted sons and daughters, to have you as our Heavenly Father. I pray through this truth that you would change our lives and you would set us on a course that, that would be dramatically different than what it would be without this knowledge, without this understanding. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to grant power for us to grasp what it means to be adopted sons and daughters, that from our hearts we would cry, Abba, Father, in a deep way, understanding what it is to have God as our Heavenly Father. We ask this trusting in you as the gracious one. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. This is highlighting this truth about our adoption, and I would want you to know that this truth is throughout Scripture. This is not an isolated verse. I could pick many verses in scripture that would speak about this, but I believe this particular section highlights some key truths about our adoption as sons and daughters. So follow along with me either uh, on the screen or in the Bible in your hand as we read this wonderful section of scripture. Romans 8, chap uh, chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God's word from Romans chapter 8. Our status as adopted sons and daughters of God the Father is really one of the most important and foundational truths of Christianity. This truth, this doctrine of adoption is oh so important. And understanding what it is to have God as our Father is oh so important for a Christian. Listen to what J.I. Packer says in this regard. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. And what I want to do today is just soak in this truth of the adoption that God provides for us, what it means to be adopted sons and daughter, daughters. And in particular, I want to look at verse 15. Verse 15, which really captures the core truth, I believe, for us. And it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, really inclusive, that would be sons and daughters, that's the intention, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This verse talks about two things going on. Something that is in the believer's past and something that is to be in the believer's present. In the past is this idea of the spirit of slavery. And I want to talk about the spirit of slavery. That is the antithesis to the spirit of adoption. And then I want to talk about the spirit of adoption. So those two points are the points of the message. They're there in your notes so you can follow along and fill in the blanks if you've been waiting to do that. The spirit of slavery, the spirit of adoption. Other two things I want to talk about. So it talks about the spirit of slavery in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We did not receive the spirit of slavery. Now, when it says the spirit of slavery, and then it says the spirit of adoption, it's not using the word spirit exactly the same. The word spirit can be used different ways. It can be used to speak of the Holy Spirit, God who is spirit, God the Holy Spirit. But it also can be used to speak of a principle or disposition. And so, like we would say, that's the spirit, or, or he's got a lot of spirit, the whole uh, idea of attitude and disposition. And this is what it means here when it talks about the spirit of slavery. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. The spirit of slavery is uh, explained in context here in Romans and elsewhere in Scripture as well. Galatians, in many ways, parallels the book of Romans. It's an earlier and a shorter version of Romans written by Paul. But Paul talks about this very topic in Galatians as well, Galatians chapter 4. Listen to what he says in Galatians 4, 6-7. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Isn't that remarkably parallel to the verse in Romans? The order's a little bit reversed. He talks first about the, the spirit of his son, the spirit of adoption, and then this idea of being a slave. He contrasts being a slave with a son. And this contrast is really important for us. Because I think we either live as believers falling back into this, the, uh, the spirit of slavery and fear, or we live under the, the spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. Those are the two options that are there for us. And so understanding both is really important. Paul is speaking of when he says the spirit of slavery and the idea of being a slave and not a son, the whole idea of living as a slave under the law. Living as a slave under the law of God. So if you read in the context in Romans 8, and you read in the context particularly in Galatians 4, you will see that, that the slavery is the slavery of living under the law. And you can think, well, what, how could that be slavery? How could it be slavery to live under the law? For the law here is the law of God, and we know the law is good, right? God's law is good. There's nothing evil or wrong in God's law at all. God's law says things like, do not kill. That's a good thing, isn't it? Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery. It says things like, love your neighbor as yourself. These are all good things. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a good thing. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God. So how could you become a slave living under the law? How could that possibly be? Well, sadly, when we relate to the law, living under the law, and in our weak and sinful nature, it does not produce in us good. It enslaves us. And our sinful nature responds to the law not by embracing it and saying, I want to do this, but saying, how can I get away without really doing this? And what will happen is we will have a tendency to, to, to somehow pervert the law, to uh, perhaps work really hard to feel like we're doing it. We're, we're obeying the law, not for the sake of love for God, but for the sake of achievement and merit before God. We can measure our day and our self-worth and our worth of others by how well we obey the law. It gets twisted. When the good law interacts with sinful human beings, it, things get twisted. They get turned around, and the law becomes an opportunity for self-righteousness. And basically saying, God, I obeyed the law, now you must act. You must do something for me. Or, God, I obey the law, so I'm better than this other person. Things get warped and twisted, and it enslaves us. We live in slavery when we live this way. And it's really quite ridiculous to think that we could truly live under the law. To think that somehow we could obey the law. If you think you can live under the law, if you, can, if you think you can somehow be good enough for God, if you think you can somehow make your sense of self-worth good by your performance... And don't we do that? I mean, this is what the law does. It enslaves us. We become a daily slave of the law if we live under the law. The, our day, how we feel about our day, gets related to the law. If we're having a day where we think we're obeying God's law fairly well, then we feel good about ourselves. We start to feel good about our relationship with God. I'm, I'm pretty good. But then we can have another day, the next day, or even sometime during the day when we just fail miserably. And then we feel awful about ourselves. 
And that's a slavery of living up and down, disobeying, obeying, and, and, and viewing ourselves somehow by how well we obey the law. The law is good, but the idea that you can somehow measure your worth before others, in your own eyes, or before God, by the law is quite ridiculous. You, if you live that way, you are either in a serious delusion of your own goodness or a serious delusion of the holiness of God. You fail to see how holy God is, and you fail to see how unholy you are. It's a delusion to think that you can somehow merit God's favor, somehow have a reason in and of yourself, in and of your performance, to think that, well, today I'm pretty good. God is holy, and his law is perfect. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Think about that. If you are to obey the law, you must love the Lord your God all the time. Every moment of your life, you are to love God. Every thought that you have is to be love for God. Every motivation that is in your heart is to be pure love for God. Every action that you undertake, pure love for God. When you drive in your car and someone cuts you off, there is to be pure love for God at that moment. None of us pass that test. Everything, every fiber of your being, every moment of your day, all that you do is to love the Lord your God with everything and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that one. How much time do you think about yourself? Probably all the time, right? Every waking moment, we think about ourselves, how we can feel better, how we can feed ourselves, how we can do whatever. We think about ourselves. We have probably at times grand dreams of our glory and what we'll do, grand delusions of glory. I always have those when I think about my sports uh, career. They're just delusions of glory. I never believe what I say. Um, but we're like that. We think about ourselves all the time, but you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So you are to think about others with the same degree of consistency and intensity and devotion that you think about yourself. Think about that. How much do you think about your neighbor? Even your spouse or your children. Does it even compare to how much you think about yourself? That's the law of God. God's law is perfect. Do you come anywhere close to doing that? What percentage of your day do you obey God's law? percent maybe I think that's very generous I think it's a lot lower than that if we really think about it we all fall far short of the law the law is good it's perfect it's righteous but we fall so far short of the law and if you make the law your master it will be a cruel master and it will deceive you and you will find yourself a slave that's what Paul's talking about here you will find yourself a slave under the law it will, it will run and ruin your life. You will be, either become filled with condemnation or filled with self-righteousness. You will have to get up each day and be under the whip of the law to somehow perform on that day, to somehow meet the standard that you've set for yourself. Recently, I was studying this and, and, and came across something that shocked me as I studied this whole idea of being a slave under the law. Another dimension that's added here in Galatians 4, 
Paul talks about the slavery of living under the law, and he says something really shocking about it. I think we have this to project, Galatians 4, 8 to 9. Listen to what Paul's saying. He's speaking to the Galatians. Now, what's happened to the Galatians is, is they came to Christ through faith, through the grace of God. They embraced what they had in Christ. They turned from their sins to Christ and received all the blessings of salvation. But then something happened along the way. Some bad teaching creeped crept into the church and they started to think that well in order to maintain our favor with God we must obey the law we must follow the law now again the law is good and and God gives us power to begin to fulfill the law in Christ and talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment but that's different from living under the law as your master and that's what had happened to the Galatians so Paul writes this letter to the Galatians and he says in chapter 4 verses 8 through 9 he says formally when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So just stop for a minute. He's speaking to Galatians, most, probably mostly Gentiles. Mostly uh, what had been going on in their spiritual lives is they worshipped false gods. They perhaps even worshipped a pantheon of false gods. And they would bring sacrifices to these false gods, and their sense of how well they could do in their lives was, was related to these sacrifices and performing for these false gods. And what Scripture would teach is that behind these false gods are actually demonic entities. They're not just absent idols. There's actually demonic forces and entities behind false gods. So that's what Paul's saying. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved, same sort of language, enslaved, to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Listen to what Paul's saying. Before you knew Christ, you worshipped pagan idols. And there were demons behind that. Now you've come to Christ. Now they want to go back, not to the pagan idols, but to living under the law. They want to go back to living under the law and performing and being enslaved by the law. And so Paul is equating here in this verse living as worshipers of idols and demons with living as those who are legalistic. He's saying basically if you live a legalistic life, you are living, worshiping demons. That's shocking. And we can sometimes take legalism lightly. Paul doesn't in Galatians 4. He says it's the same thing. Living under these elementary principles of the world is living, living under demonic lies. There's nothing good about being a slave of the law. There's nothing admirable about being self-righteous. There's nothing that God esteems in thinking that you can earn his favor with your performance. It's not a light Christian sin. It's a serious one. It's not just a Christian sin. It's the sin of everybody. We all want to earn our way to heaven and before God. And to do so is to live as a slave. If you live this lifestyle, your view of God as a believer will become grossly perverted. He will not be a all-holy, but and yet merciful and kind, gracious, powerful God. He will be a distant, brooding deity, ever inspecting your life, ever finding it wanting. No matter what you do, he will find fault with you. 
There will always be some way you fall short. And when you think you are doing well, you will live in relationship with him like a fair-weather friend, walking on eggshells, afraid of doing the wrong thing. This is not who God is. This is not the gospel. So let me ask you some questions. I think we have these to show up uh, on the overhead. Just to help you think through your own life. And the, the questions here are driving at, are you living under the spirit of slavery? Are you living under the law? Are you living with the law as your master? In contrast to living with God as your father. First question, does your sense of success and happiness fluctuate day to day? Trending upward when you're doing well and downward when you're doing poorly. Do you find yourself impatient and even judgmental with those who don't maintain the same standard of behavior you have, whether in speech, conduct, clothing, manners, actions? Do you suffer from condemnation when you fall short of God's standards? or your own standards? Are you rarely or inconsistently joyful? Is holiness, and God does call us to holiness, but is holiness about a loving response to God's grace or meeting a standard or making up for what maybe you or God, what you perceive God to have failed to do? If your answer is yes for any of these questions, you may very well be living as a slave, enslaved under the law in a spirit of slavery. When Paul addressed the Romans with this, he, he says something here. He said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, and then he says this, to fall back into fear. To fall back into fear. What he's saying is that this is, is really something for the Romans and really for every Christian that you can fall back into. So you're not alone, by the way, if this is your struggle. We all have this tendency to fall back into this lifestyle, to fall back into legalism, to fall back to think that my sense of God's love for me depends on my performance, how well I'm obeying the law, my sense of self-worth, my sense of others is dependent on the law. We fall back into that. We are creatures of habit, but not just that. There's this, this force in us called the sinful nature that doesn't want to live by grace, wants to live by the law. Now, thank God, the spirit for the believer is there, and we'll talk about that shortly. There's power, but there's this tendency to fall back into our old ways. About six days a week, I, I leave my home... Uh, off of Main Street, North Main Street in Haverhill, take a left onto Main Street in traffic and drive down Main Street to South Main Street and pull in to come here to church or to work. Um, about six days a week. Sometimes when we go out and go, go somewhere, and um, I'll come uh, drive out with my family or whoever's in the car, I'll take the left, and we're supposed to get on the highway on 495 to go south on 495 to visit someone else. And so often, actually, uh, when my wife isn't there to remind me, I just drive right over 495 and keep on going. I'm on autopilot. I'm going to work, and I don't even know it. Have you guys ever done that? Do you ever do that? I do a lot, actually. <laughs> um, but that's how we are. 
That's how we are in our sinful nature, too. There's an autopilot in us that says, no, not grace, but the law. And we'll fall back. And it does take a degree of diligence in our lives by God's grace, according to his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes us saying, no, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to fall back into fear. I'm choosing today to not live by fear, not live by the law, not live by how well I feel like I've obeyed the law today. I'm not going to fall back into fear. And that's the result, isn't it? Fear. You live in fear. You live in fear of God. You live in fear. He's a holy God. He's perfectly holy. He's gloriously holy. He, he is always perfect and right. Christ himself loved perfectly. And so it's right. If you're going to live under the law, it's right to live in fear. And that's what happens to us. We fall back and we live in fear, afraid. Am I going to make it today? Am I going to be good enough? And we live in this, this awful place of fear. It's crazy, but we do it. But thank God, there's another way of living. There's another way of living talked about in verse 15. We mustn't live. We mustn't fall back. We mustn't stay living in the spirit of slavery but to live in the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The alternative is glorious. And this whole chapter in Romans 8 is about this new life in the spirit, this new life living in the Holy Spirit, in the spirit of adoption, living as sons and daughters, all that that means. And it's a wonderful passage in Scripture, Romans chapter 8. It actually fits into a whole flow of thought that Paul's bringing to the Romans. And really, God has brought to us through Paul and preserving his word for us. The whole flow of thought in Romans is uh, just speaking of God's righteousness. God's righteousness and God's righteousness in his son, God's righteousness in bringing wrath, God's righteousness in his holiness, and the reality that we've all fallen short. Paul pounds that question, pounds that point over and over again. He, he mercilessly brings that truth to bear in Romans chapter 3. There's no one who is good, no one who, who does good, no one who is righteous, no, not one. He brings that home for everybody. We all alike are under condemnation because of our sin. The law, obeying the law does not provide a way out because we fail. The law actually stirs up the sinful nature to disobey God. He does that, he brings that truth, and then he brings the truth of God's righteousness to bear at that point, ultimately in Christ. That now there's a righteousness that's apart from the law, by grace, through faith in Christ. There's a righteousness, there's a way to be counted right before God. There's a way to, to, to know God and to be right before him. And it's not through the law, it's not through our obedience, it's through Christ who perfectly obeyed and then shed his blood on the cross as the propitiation for our sins, to, to deal with the penalty of our sin. For God is holy. He must deal with sin. And we are sinners who have failed miserably. And we know it. Oh, it's just so sad that we just don't live facing that reality. We don't want to. The biggest bar barrier to coming to God is, is this resistance to the idea that we are somehow sinful enough to be rejected by God, to deserve alienation from God. And it's a miracle of God when he gives us the power to face it. 
And he gives us the power to face it in the, the beauty of the promise of Christ's righteousness. That he sent his son to die for you on the cross, to shed his blood, to pay for you, to be that perfect sacrifice to the Father. So that you, as you turn from your self-effort and law living, trying to please him, and your sin, your law disobedience to Christ, Put your faith in him. He accepts you for Christ's sake. And then for the believer who has turned to Christ and put his faith in Christ, there is now righteousness that stands before God every moment and every day. So no matter how you're doing on any given day, Christ is your righteousness. So you can build your life on him. If you're feeling terrible about how you've done, and God cares about how you live. He cares about loving him and loving others. It isn't that we throw that out, but we don't live by that. So maybe you're having a bad day, but you needn't stand on your righteousness. You have Christ, your righteousness, to know that he stands before the Father. You are accepted and forgiven and, and loved. And on your best days, your best efforts fall so far short of the righteousness he requires, yet Christ is still your righteousness on that day. And so you can live day to day victorious in Christ, you can know joy that's consistent because it isn't built on how you're doing, but on how Christ has done. And Christ has finished his work and stands before the Father interceding for us. We are forgiven. We are beloved. So Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in Christ. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is new life that we have in Christ. And now the Spirit is in us, and He gives us power to actually love God and love others and grow ever more like Christ. It's by His grace. It's by the Holy Spirit. Not your self-effort. Christ has come for us. And in this context, Paul speaks about the spirit of adoption. But it's interesting, this idea of Christ dying for us, offering up his righteousness in our place, taking our sins, that is captured by the word justification. Have you heard that word, justification? To be justified, to be counted righteous before God. That's what that's about, and that's a really important concept. But justification is linked to our adoption as well. Pastor H.A. Ironside uh, was the guest of from some friends who were sheep raisers, and it was lambing time. And every morning they went out to see the lambs. There were hundreds of them playing about. And one morning he was startled to see a, an old ewe, a female sheep, for those who don't know stuff like that. I, um, actually, I wasn't sure what a ewe was. I had to look it up. City boy. So this old, old ewe go across the street and followed by the strangest-looking lamb he had ever seen. It apparently had six legs. And the skin seemed to be partially torn from its body in a way that made him think, boy, the, the lamb must be suffering. But one of the herders caught the lamb and brought it over to him, and the mystery of the six-legged lamb was explained. 
You see, the lamb did not originally belong to this youth. She had had a lamb which had been bitten by a rattlesnake and died, and this lamb itself was an orphan and needed the care of a mother sheep. They brought the, the lamb to the mother who had lo lost her own lamb to see if the mother would care for it. And the mother sniffed the lamb and said, this isn't mine, and rejected it. So then what they did is they took the fleece from the dead lamb and wrapped it around the orphan lamb, brought it back to the mother. She smelled the fleece of her own lamb and readily accepted this lamb as her own and took care of it thoroughly satisfied in adopting this lamb. That's a picture of what we have in Christ. Christ is the precious son. Christ has earned the favor of the father. The father loves the son. And when you turn from your sin to the son, it's as if his fleece enwraps you. And when you come before the father, he says, yes, this is my son. This is my daughter. He loves you as if you were Christ, his own son. So not only are you justified by that lamb whose blood was shed for you, but you are adopted into the family. You are made as sons and daughters. You are beloved and welcomed and accepted. The Holy Spirit himself brings this truth to bear in our hearts. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons and daughters. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He works in our life to bring this truth home to us. J.I. Packer, speaking of this truth of adoption in light of justification, says the following in Knowing God, a wonderful book I encourage you to read. He says, justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs, closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. When we come to Christ, put our trust in him. We are justified in him, and we are adopted. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, communicates to our spirit, communicates to us that we are sons and daughters. That is, to some degree, the experience of every believer. And it is to be, for every believer, their regular experience. To be a believer is to be characterized as one not, who is not only justified, but one who is adopted to live each day in that adoption, 
to live each day as sons and daughters, knowing that you are accepted by the Father and beloved and ever secure. To have your security and your identity grounded in Him in an eternal, glorious way. This is your inheritance as a believer. And so let me ask you this morning, does this describe your relationship with God? Are you more aware of His closeness, affection, and generosity than your sins, shortcomings, and temptations? Are you more aware of His closeness, affection, and generosity than your sins or shortcomings or temptations? Is your forgiveness before Him particularly wonderful, not just because you are acquitted by the judge, but accepted by the Father? Father loves you? Do you know and experience his warm embrace? Do you find your heart saying, Abba, Father? If the band could come up as we close. Paul speaks to the Romans saying that this is their experience. It's instructive of I believe their present experience and the experience of every believer, but it's also an encouragement for them to not fall back into the spirit of slavery, but to live in the spirit of adoption. So there's probably two groups of people here today I want to address. One is that you've never yet received what Christ offers you. You've never yet put your faith in him. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to establish yourself on your own before God, before others. And, and God is calling you today to stop. To receive that fleece, to receive Christ who was sacrificed for you if you would trust him. And all you need to do is just respond and receive what he's done. To receive what Christ has done for you, to receive adoption. You can pray with me like this, and, and you can just close your eyes right now and pray this way. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. I don't want to sin anymore, but follow you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for my sins and give me life. I receive that new life right now. That simple prayer. That simple prayer of faith is a prayer that is answered by God. And he receives you. He counts you righteous, and he counts you as his son or daughter. If you pray that, I'd love to talk with you. Or I'd like to, if you want to pray with me personally, I would love to do that. The other group of people are believers. You already have received Christ as your Savior, as your justification. But you find yourself so often on autopilot, so often going back, falling back into the spirit of slavery and to fear, and very seldom ex experiencing the spirit of adoption. I just want to pray for you. And I want to tell you that we are a family, a church family that's together learning to live in the spirit of adoption together at times, each individually at times, struggling and falling back into the spirit of slavery and the fear that comes with that. So you're not alone. But we are solemnly
committed to turning away from that lifestyle and legalism to living in grace. So I just want to pray for you. And we are here for you and with you in this. So if you are, if that describes you, you can just close your eyes, maybe hold your hands out, however you want to express to the Lord that you want to receive and be renewed in the spirit of adoption. And I just want to pray. Lord, forgive us for living as slaves under the law, thinking we can earn something from you. Forgive us for judging others by that as well. Forgive us for judging ourselves and misunderstanding you. Forgive us, O oh God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are that precious lamb that was slain for us. And it is because of you alone that we stand righteous before the Father. And it is because of you alone that we are adopted as sons and daughters. I pray for each one here, Lord. I pray that they would know what it is to live in the spirit of adoption. Holy Spirit, even right now as they confess the sin of legalism, would you let them know their forgiveness, and would you grant them power by your Holy Spirit, even now as we conclude, Lord, would you grant them power to know that they are daughters and sons, that in their heart they would know and their heart cry would be, Abba, Father, I'm accepted and, and loved and secure. Bless your people and glorify your name this way.